Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the program, understanding Russia. On the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin said this week that his military would fight with all available means at its disposal, but it's going to take a while. Also, Moscow's prisoner swap with Washington, Brittany Griner for infamous arms dealer Victor Boot. A fair trade? Welcome home, Brittany. I asked two of the best Russia experts. And the coup plot in Germany. Dozens arrested, including a German aristocrat and a former member of parliament. Mixed in allegedly are elements of QAnon and a German conspiracy group that believes the state of Germany is actually a corporation. What in the world is going on in Deutschland? We will ask an expert. Then is the tide turning in Iran? This week, a former Iranian president called on the current regime to take a softer approach and recognize where their governance has gone wrong. I'll talk to Iranian actress and activist Nazanin Bonyadi about what is happening on the ground. But first, here's my take. The United States and Europe find themselves in a closer alliance than at any point in many decades. France, for example, has long been the European nation most reluctant to play junior partner in an American-led enterprise. In his first years in office, Emmanuel Macron did his best to display his Gaullist credentials, describing NATO as brain-dead and declaring his greatest priority to be developing Europe's strategic autonomy an autonomy that he defined in part as separate from the United States. Contrast that with Macron's remarks in November of this year, when he talked about NATO as a cornerstone of French and European security. While in Washington last week, he described the new goal for the continent as strategic intimacy with Washington and spoke of the need for even deeper cooperation. When the French president starts sounding like the British prime minister, it's worth paying attention. And it's not just Macron. Germany's Olaf Scholz has sounded a clarion call for Western unity in the pages of foreign affairs. For those wondering whether Germany's declared shift in foreign policy earlier this year was a momentary reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Scholz makes clear that he believes we are at the end of an era of peace. He underlined the massive turnaround in German foreign policy, chiefly the creation of a roughly $100 billion fund to upgrade the German armed forces, which he called the starkest change in German security policy 
since 1955. The break with precedent was so dramatic that Germany had to amend its constitution to make it possible. The epochal tectonic shift, as Schultz describes it, has been triggered by the Russian invasion. But it's also a response to the dawning of a new age of great power competition, a recognition that the rules-based international order built by the United States and Europe is in danger of crumbling as countries like Russia and China and others break those rules, push for their own unilateral advantage, and precipitate a return to a world where might makes right. The Russian invasion explains much of this, but the Biden administration deserves much credit for how it has handled that challenge. Until now, Washington has managed to rally large parts of the world to oppose Putin's aggression. The U.S. has persuaded most of its allies to act forcefully to punish Russia and many others to at least aid Ukraine. All this has helped to create a moment of unusual Western unity, which could help restore and rebuild a rules-based international system. But these successes can still be squandered by America's own unilateralism and pursuit of narrow self-interest. European leaders have been dismayed by how protectionist the Biden administration has turned out to be in its economic policy putting Buy America provisions in many of its spending bills and showering subsidies on green technology produced in the United States. All of these measures are violations of the rules governing open markets and free trade that are at the heart of the international system that Washington has sponsored since the late 1940s. France's finance minister complained that Washington is now copying China's government-led industrial policy, the tensions are only going to grow because Europe's pain is only going to get worse. Facing natural gas prices that are seven times higher and electricity prices ten times higher than in the previous two decades, many European firms are finding that they simply cannot compete. The Financial Times reports that there is a genuine risk of the deindustrialization of Germany if major industries like chemicals and auto manufacturing move more factories overseas to the U.S. or China. Europeans are enraged by what they see as rank American hypocrisy. As the pain for ordinary Europeans grows and as their companies move production to America, the friction will make it harder to get sustained cooperation from Europe on Russia. Europe will also be less likely to take a tough and united stand on China, a market that will become increasingly vital to the continent's economic future. And as Europe and others start retaliating against American protectionism with their own, the open international system will start shutting down. Now, when people like me raise objections to protectionism and economic nationalism, we are often dismissed as being naive about the domestic politics of this issue. Democrats are doing this, so the argument goes, to help American workers and thus stem the tide of right-wing populism. The trouble with the argument is that the working class has abandoned the Democratic Party largely on cultural issues. It's true elsewhere as well. Look at France, where workers are coddled, or Sweden with its generous welfare and training programs. Both have growing right-wing populist parties largely fueled by issues like immigration race, and education.
assuming that people can be swayed from their fervently held beliefs because of a few government subsidies might actually be the more naive view. Go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. On Wednesday, in a meeting with Russia's Human Rights Council, Vladimir Putin said of his war in Ukraine, it's going to take a while. Later, when pressed on the use of nuclear weapons, Putin said Russia wouldn't brandish them like a razor, but wouldn't commit to not using them first, and said that the risk of nuclear war was rising. I wanted to talk to two people who've spent decades studying Russia and who both have new books about the war. Luke Harding is a reporter for The Guardian, and his latest book is Invasion. Owen Matthews is a correspondent for The Spectator and a historian. His latest book is Overreach. They join me now. Um, Look, let me ask you, because you've been in Kherson, you've been in, in, in Ukraine very recently, and you've spent a lot of time there. What is your sense of the state of the war in this sense, which is you always hear about the Ukrainian having extraordinary morale. They're fighting for their country, for democracy, for, and the Russians don't know what they're fighting for. So when you've been, been there, this, this question of the sort of test of, of, of morale, where do you think it stands? I, I mean, I broadly agree with that. I mean, you talk to any Ukrainian soldier, and they all say the same thing, that they're fighting for their country and for democracy and so on. Uh, and the Russians, it's not entirely clear what it's all about. I mean, at the beginning, it was about denazifying, demilitarizing Ukraine. Then it was about saving the Donbass in the east of the country. Um, and, and recently, we have Putin, as you say, talking about a very long war. But my sense is actually the Ukrainians keep on surprising us. I mean, no, no one... I was in Kiev on February the 24th when, when actually most people thought the Ukrainian capital would, would fall, including those in the government of Volodymyr Zelensky, many of them. And we've come such a long way in 10 months to the point where actually Ukraine has evicted Russia from half of the territory that it seized. And, and now my sense is, is we'll push forward next year and in winter, perhaps in the south, less so in the east. But I think this is a dynamic situation with both sides dug in for the long haul. Uh, Owen, you unusually have been to Russia uh, several times after the war began. What, what is your sense of the, the mood in Russia? I mean, obviously, it's a little bit subjective. You, you're not seeing the whole country, but what's your sense? Um, you're right. Um, I see, uh, I've been to Moscow um, three times. I was most recently there in mid-October, um, until mid-October. The bizarre fact of the matter is that there is no sense whatsoever that you are in the capital of a country that is fighting the biggest war of the 21st century. But, um, right up to September 21st, I was there by coincidence, when Putin took everyone by surprise by announcing mobilization. Until that moment, the war was completely invisible, and actually deliberately so, because in the first week of the war, when I was also there, there was a little bit of a wave of public patriotism. And that very quickly, quickly disappeared. And the state of uh, Russian people is essentially uh, those who, the, a small minority, are in despair. And for them, the world, world has collapsed. They've run for the exits. About half a million, by some estimates, have actually gone to now, uh, you know, to wherever they can get to, basically. Um, but for the vast majority, they're either too poor to leave 
or too rich to leave. They have too much to lose. And the predominant mood among the elite members, you know, the, the sort of upper middle class, sort of government-connected bureaucratic people, is sort of quiet despair and denial. And you know, basically, they just don't want to know. Luke, what do you think happens? You mentioned that the Ukrainians are now going to push forward. But they are going to start then getting to the, those parts of the Donbass, which are really, I don't want to say pro-Russian, but have mixed feelings. This, this is why Russia was able to take them in 2014 so easily, mm. uh, as with Crimea. These are largely Russian-speaking. Many of those people thought the Ukrainian government discriminated against them by not allowing them to speak Russian and things like that. The, the New York Times had a good story on one of these towns where, which has just been liberated, where sort of half the people are glad they were liberated and half the people are apprehensive about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's complicated. I mean, first of all, we have to acknowledge that Ukraine is bilingual. So everyone speaks um, Russian and Ukrainian. And I, I speak uh, Russian all the time in Kiev, and it's, it's not a problem. And also, like Owen, I, I covered uh, the moment eight years ago in 2014 where these sort of Russian-backed militias seized Donetsk and Luhansk. And yeah, there, there was a kind of pro-Russian constituency, many of old people, but others as well. But there were also plenty of people who were pro-Ukrainian. And, and they were driven out or they'd been silenced. Um, some have left, some have stayed. But uh, I think I, I would say it's interesting listening to Owen about the mood in Moscow. The mood in Kiev now is pretty vehement. So many people have died. So much has been lost. You know, almost 500 kids have been killed. Um, cities like Mariupol have been pulverized by Russian aviation by Russian bombs. And there, there is no mood for, 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 for dealing, for negotiations with Putin. They are determined to liberate everything. So that includes those areas you're talking about in the east. It also includes Crimea. And I think, I think there's going to be a really interesting uh, point in this war, which we'll reach sooner or later. Let's say Ukraine comes close to Crimea. Is that the point that, that Washington, whether it's the Biden administration or some other administration, phones up Zelensky and says, look, time to stop and, and, and settle? Or because the Ukrainians, I think, are determined to carry on. And it's a question actually for the West. How far does the West back Ukraine right up until the end or somewhere short of that? And, and Owen, from your sense, uh, and in your book, you spend a lot of time talking about the kind of the mentality that led Putin to, to adopt these, you know, fairly extreme views on, on, on Ukraine. Is, is it possible that Putin is going to get to a point where he will be willing to negotiate? I think the, 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 the issue for Putin is that he just wants, is, is willing to throw as much as it, at this war as it takes to not lose it. And he's, uh, it's, it's very clear when you talk to you know, people who, who um, you know, second-tier people, third-tier people who are, you know, in that um, Kremlin administration orbit, um, they all assume that the West is going to lose interest. And th that's not totally irrational, by the way, because that's what happened before. And that's the problem with this war, is that Putin assumed that the future would be like the past. And in the past, they invaded, they took Crimea in 2014. A year later, Angela Merkel was signing a $10 billion pipeline deal. They just think that the West is cynical. We've got to hold on for a bit. We have to take a break <laughs> and we will get back to that. But also the other big news out of Russia this week, the prisoner swap with the U.S., the notorious arms dealer Victor Boot for the WNBA star Brittany Griner. Who got the better end of the deal? I'll ask the experts when we come back. Yeah. 
After news broke Thursday morning of a U.S.-Russian prisoner swap, a senior White House official told CNN it was a painful decision for President Biden. There had been two high-profile Americans wrongly detained by Moscow, WNBA star Brittany Griner and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. But only Griner was on a plane out of Russia on Thursday, leaving Whelan behind. In exchange, the U.S. released Victor Boot, a notorious arms dealer. Let me bring back our experts, our Russia hands, to talk about the swap. Luke, what do you think? Um, it was was it a? It feels a little unbalanced. <laughs> It was a bad deal for the U.S., uh, unfortunately, and a good deal for, for Russia because we're talking about a uh, basketball star who was framed by the Federal Security Service, the FSB, Putin's old spy agency, versus um, a prolific arms dealer who's committed alleged crimes all over the world. And I think the other, the other sort of uh, bad thing from a U.S. perspective is the sort of precedent that it sets because essentially Vladimir Putin believes that anything can be traded any deal can be made, that that actually when the West talks about human rights, it's just kind of hypocritical. Uh, And it's all about realpolitik and power and money. And this kind of confirms the sort of rather cynical Russian view that, that, you know, we have something, you have something, we trade. And of course, it sets a precedent for Ukraine, because Putin would like nothing better than to sit down with Joe Biden, decide the future of Ukraine, decide the future of Eastern and Central Europe, um, as if it's the 19th century, with a map where they kind of draw... Uh, with with felt-tip pens, you have this, I have this. Uh, And he basically thinks everything can be negotiated that way or it's a conspiracy. It's his classic KGB brain. And unfortunately, this is a classic KGB moment involving an alleged KGB operative who's been sitting in jail in the States for 12 years. That image you have, of course, of them drawing up a map that is essentially what Stalin and Winston Churchill did. They drew up a map of Eastern Europe and they literally assigned percentages of influence that Russia and the West would be allowed. But, but, but Owen, I got to ask you, what do you think of this deal? Uh, it's, it's a hostage situation. It's blackmail. Um, the Russia has been at it for a long time. It's sort of classic Cold War, FSB, um, dirty diplomacy. Didn't you, uh, in your book, your grandfather... Your, your, my father. Your my, father my, was, my, was part of a swap. My, my, my mother is Russian. She was uh, only allowed out of the Soviet Union in 1969 after six years of trying because she, and my, she was added as like a make weight in exactly the same kind of swap. And the, the 55 years have passed. Nothing has happened. Nothing has changed since. Um, the, the, that, that's, that, that's the way the, um, the, the, the sort of KGB men who've, who run Russia roll. Luke, I think you wanted to say something when, when Owen was making the point that Putin's strategy is to hope that the West gets tired. And I would say also that the price for ordinary Europeans, particularly of all this and these energy hikes and all that, becomes um, unbearable. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to follow on from, from Owen is that one of Putin's big strategic mistakes was to think the Ukraine of 2022 was the Ukraine of 2014, where there was a sort of receptive minority, as we've been discussing, to, to Russia. Now, the, the great irony of this war is that Putin has consolidated Ukraine as a state, as a nation, as a people. And those differences have largely melted away. And the other mistake he thought was that he thought the West would do not much like last time. And in fact, what we've seen is an unprecedented anti-Kremlin coalition. And despite their calculation that, that we would flake, we the West would flake, it's been pretty robust. And I think we've seen a restoration of American leadership under the Biden administration. We've seen the Germans do unthinkable things like abandon pacifism. We've seen NATO bolstered by, by Swedes and Finns joining. 
the UK more friendly towards its European neighbors. I mean, it's been a real kind of turning point in history. And I think actually Putin, aging dictator, there for two decades plus, out of touch with reality, is, is behind the curve as to where we are now. How does this end? Um, I think, sadly, um, it ends like every other war ends, um, which doesn't end in total victory. It, it, there's going to be a negotiation eventually. Uh, and I acknowledge that the Ukrainians are completely determined to fight to the end, and also fatally, I think, and very dangerously for Ukraine. And there comes a point where Russia actually has enough manpower and enough dumb weaponry just to you know, make the, any further military advance incredibly bloody. And that's what Mark Milley, unfortunately, said. It's not the world we, we want to live in, but it's the world that we do live in. I mean, Mark Milley predicted uh, a long, bloody stalemate. And that's, unfortunately, I'm, I, I think that's, that's probably what's going to happen, just because of the volume of, of, of Russian military hardware and, and sort of meat that they can throw into the grinder. All right, sorry we, to say. We, we, have to, we have to leave it there. We will, we will be back. This was fascinating. Thank you both. Next on GPS, the headlines seemed like they were straight out of fiction. But the fact is, dozens of people were arrested this week for allegedly plotting to overthrow the government of Germany. We'll explain the story behind the headlines in a moment. What do three police officers, a judge and a minor German nobleman all have in common? Well, this week there were among 25 arrested in connection to a plot to overthrow the German government and, get this, establish a monarchy with that aforementioned noble at the helm. They're suspected to be part of a movement known as the Reichsburger or Citizens of the Reich. The group believes the German state today is illegitimate, that it's actually a corporation set up by allied governments after the Second World War. The Reichsburger is believed to have more than 20,000 followers around the country. Is this a January 6th moment for Germany? Joining me now is Peter Neumann, Professor of Security Studies at King's College London and an expert on global terror. Peter, let me ask you first to just explain to us who are these people and what do they believe? You know, whenever we see something like this uh, in, in Germany, we imagine that this is, you know, the sort of neo-Nazis or, the, you know, this feels to me almost like uh, Babylon Berlin, that wonderful series, is about to, at least in the, we- in the English-speaking world, is about to have season four preview in a week. It feels like the preview began one week early. Yes. I think the closest comparison in an American context are probably the sovereign citizens. They're basically espousing similar beliefs. They don't believe the state really exists or is legitimate. They produce their own passports. They refuse to pay taxes. They produce their own driving licenses. And their narrative is that basically they want to go back to monarchy. Monarchy ceased to exist in Germany in 1918. They want to recreate that system because they say that every German state that has come into existence, including, by the way, the Third Reich, the Nazi government was illegitimate. So they are far right because they are against democracy. They do want to create an authoritarian government, but they are not neatly fitting into the neo-Nazi category because they want to create a different kind of authoritarian government. Now, to what extent does this say something about uh, the stability of German politics that we had taken for granted? I mean, we think of Mm. Germany as being the most stable country in, in, in the West, really, you, you know, unlike almost every other Western country, there is no significant far-right populist movement. 
you know, the AFD is a small party in Germany. Does this, should this shatter that sense of what is going on in Germany? Well, I think there have always been people around like this. I mean, that movement came into existence in the 1980s. It didn't, however, have a lot of followers until, let's say, about 10 years ago. And especially during the pandemic, this kind of movement took off to some extent. There has been, like in America and like in a lot of other European countries, a lot of interest in conspiracy theories, a lot of interest in people saying the state is oppressing us. Is the state really legitimate? Are we governed by a global cabal, secretive cabal? And that's what the Reichsbürger are playing into. And to some extent, Germany has experienced that like a lot of other countries. The difference to America, I guess, is that the center-right, the mainstream center-right in Germany is not supporting this. It is completely against it. So in that sense, they do not have support from within the mainstream of the, of the political system. And, there, and it's a fairly small movement, I think 20,000. But to what extent did they look at something like January 6th and get inspired? Do we know? That, that certainly was an inspiration for them. I mean, it has to be said, they have 20,000 supporters. Um, around 10%, the German Domestic Intelligence Agency, around 2,000 people are supposed to be potentially violent. And what's really important about this movement is that in contrast to the rest of German society, they are heavily armed. They are people who are hoarding arms in the basements of their houses. They are waiting for day X just like the QAnon movement in America. And they've all been watching the storming of the Capitol. And that's what they were trying to recreate. They were essentially trying to do the same thing. Now, I don't believe for one second they would have succeeded, but they would have caused a lot of damage both to people, but also to the trust in institutions as a consequence. So is this something that is more akin to QAnon? Uh, I mean, a slightly more visible uh, version of QAnon, and are there any connections between the two? Well, it is, I think, quite similar in the sense that it's driven by conspiracy theorists um, that are so laughable. If you listen to them as an outsider, you think this can't be true. They must be weirdos. They must be nutcases. But it is a, a serious political movement, at least that's how they consider themselves. They are heavily armed and they are listening very heavily to QAnon. German is the most translated into language of QAnon content. And you would have never thought that this takes off in any national context outside of the United States, but it did in Germany. They are closely following QAnon and they are trying to imitate it to some extent. Peter, this is fascinating. Uh, thank you so much. You've really shed a lot of insight on a puzzling, bizarre story. Um, thank you. Thank you for reading. Next on GPS, Iran has started executing protesters. Will this disturbing escalation rise up the people in the streets or take them off those streets? Answers when we come back. The government announced that it executed 23-year-old Mohsen Shakari on Thursday. He is one of 12 protesters who have been sentenced to death by the regime, according to the UN. On Friday, a top Iranian official suggested more executions were imminent. The protest was sparked by the death of Mahsa Amini. She died after she was arrested by Iran's morality police. 
I want to bring in the British-Iranian actress and activist Nazanin Boniadi. Nazanin, tell us first what you think these, execu- these announced executions and the actual execution do to the situation on the ground. What are you hearing? I mean, people are outraged, Fareed. Um, and, you know, there's a slogan, the popular slogan, that for every person who's killed, a thousand people will rise up behind them. And that's why I think we've seen these protests last for three months now, and there's no sign of them slowing down. So every image, every report that we're hearing and seeing of uh, people being executed, wrongfully killed, is is basically galvanizing Irani- Iranian society at large to protest uh, the government even more. Is the government making any suggest- uh, concessions? Because we, we heard about the disbanding of the morality police. But that actually turns out to be something of a red herring, right? That's exactly right. It wasn't a legal edict. It was something that was just floated by an official that had no real purview or or, um, jurisdiction to make that that call. It should be something that the Ministry of the Interior is is deciding on. And there there have been no changes inside Iran. And it came at a time, conveniently for the regime, that was just before the nationwide strikes that were being planned and and that has already taken place. Um, And also the call for um, for the Islamic Republic to be uh, expelled from the Commission on the Status of Women at the United Nations. So these things seem to be somewhat strategic, but also a haphazard at the same time. Do you get the sense that there might be uh, splits within the regime? Because, you know, the last time around when the Green uh, movement uh, came into being around that contested election, uh, there were reformist members of of the regime who seemed to be calling for, uh, you know, they seemed to be breaking with the regime. So could you imagine that somebody like Mohammad Khatami, the former president who was regarded as a reformist, or uh, Zarif, the former foreign minister, who is regarded as a moderate? Do you think these, these people might peel off, or is it really they're all in this struggle for survival together? I think the latter, Fareed. I think we've now had a 43-year case study on the Islamic Republic. And um, what the slogans on the streets say it best. The people are saying what they want. They want this regime gone. And, uh, and frankly, I think the statements by um, former Pre- President Khatami, where he said that um, a change in this system is neither possible nor desirable, goes, goes against everything that the protesters are demanding. Um, so there's not just a disillusionment with the reformist movement. There's an actual uh, animosity towards them for for perpetuating the regime and the brutalities that exist today. So Steve Levitsky, this Harvard scholar, has a new book out with a co-author whose name I'm uh, unfortunately forgetting, but it it tries to examine when do dictatorships fall. And one of the points it makes is, one of the central conclusions is that regimes that come to power through revolution are the hardest to dislodge because Mm -hmm. I suppose... They kind of know they they know what to do in terms of a mixture of repression and uh, you know opening up some escape valves here and there and you know exiling d- d- dissidents. So when you think about that and you think about this regime that has so much control and has been around for forty three years, is it realistic to think that um, that these protests could actually snowball into something much much bigger and much more deadly? That's a very valid question, Fareed. I think. No popular uprising of our time has really been uh, predicted accurately, and that's pos- possibly because human behavior is unpredictable. And in the situation like this, 
it's very easy to liken it to the Arab Spring and the outcomes there, or Sri Lanka perhaps, but I would encourage um, a little bit less cynicism and maybe what we can strive for in support of, of this movement because the margin between success and failure is very slim. And we as the international community, I think, have that ability to, to tip the scale in the, in the, the favor of the protesters and pro-democracy and, and freedom in the similar way that we did for South Africa. And if you look at the David and Goliath revolutions um, of, of you know, the singing revolution of the Baltic states or Czechoslovakia, Romania, and of course the fall of the Soviet Union, we have to have that hope and we have to, uh, to, to keep hope alive for the protesters. What do you want um, the West in particular to do? I think all we can do is, um, I think in the words of um, Michael McFall, who was uh, the former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to, to Russia, he said it wasn't arm, arms control, controllers who ended the, um, the, caused the fall of the Soviet Union. It was um, freedom fighters, basically, of Soviet states. And Karim Sajad, for, for our friend at Carnegie, said this, something similar about Iran, that it won't be American diplomats. It won't be Western uh, diplomats who do that for Iran, who cause uh, an end to the Cold War with Iran. It will be the uh, small D Democrats on the ground in Iran. So our job is to empower the small D Democrats inside Iran to achieve self-determination. And do that by? I mean, there are a number of ways. I think the Human Rights Council session was a very good first step. I think strategic sanctions, magnitsky sanctions have to continue. My hope is that we sanction the Supreme Leader. We haven't done that yet. Um, and also there are a number of other ways, for example, you know, why are the children of, of these re regime officials living freely and comfortably in democratic countries, while people like Roya Pirai, who need refuge um, uh, in, out in the West, don't get the same? And so we have to make a very clear distinction of who we're supporting and, and stop supporting and empowering the regime in that way and, and start empowering civil society in Iran through Internet access and, and things like that. Fascinating to hear you, and uh, you have extraordinary courage to, to be doing this. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Fred. Next on GPS, as China emerges from draconian COVID restrictions, I will explain why the country is at a dangerous moment. And now for the last look. Remember that idea of herd immunity? At the beginning of the pandemic, anti-lockdown voices wanted to let the virus run free. They argued the population would build so much immunity that COVID would stop spreading and life could go back to normal. It was a reckless idea at the time when there were no vaccines or good treatments. But today, most countries have built up protection through a combination of vaccination and exposure. It isn't exactly herd immunity. But it's enough that the virus, while still spreading, doesn't pose a colossal threat to the population. In China, however, the situation is totally different. Tough and effective COVID restrictions have kept people from getting sick, but as a result also from acquiring natural immunity. There isn't enough protection from vaccines either, particularly among older people. And now, after a stunning wave of protests, China is suddenly loosening its restrictive COVID policies. This could get very dangerous. If China completely ends its zero COVID policy, the economist estimates the country would hit 45 million new daily infections after just one month. Virtually everyone would get infected, 
680,000 people would die, assuming enough ICU beds for everyone, which there definitely are not. Another model, reviewed by the FT, predicts 1 million deaths. Other projections go even higher to 1.6 million or 1.7 million dead. Now, it may not get that bad if China reopens gradually and uses masks and vaccines to gradually flatten the curve. But just to put this in context, and China's figures can't be completely trusted, China has reported a few thousand COVID deaths over the whole pandemic. Within months, it could rival America's death toll of one million. The big question is why China stuck to the testing and lockdown strategy for so long while the rest of the world moved on. One off-sided reason is vaccine nationalism. Two doses of a Western mRNA vaccine are far superior to two doses of the Chinese vaccine, which uses old technology. Yet, Xi Jinping is apparently too proud to import Western vaccines. So he's been playing for time while China could develop its own mRNA formula. But that's not the whole story. Chinese vaccines are hardly useless. In fact, a study in Hong Kong early in the Omicron wave found that three doses gave full protection against severe disease. But getting the whole population up to three doses would require a major vaccine push. And China's zero-COVID strategy was so extensive that it sapped the state's resources for vaccinating the population. Mass testing carried an astounding cost of nearly 1.5% of GDP. China spent vast sums building and running quarantine facilities rather than letting people quarantine at home. Another problem has been vaccine hesitancy, particularly among older people. Despite its authoritarianism, China did not follow Western nations in mandating shots. Local officials in Beijing floated a vaccine mandate and then quickly dropped it after a backlash. Senior citizens have partly resisted vaccines because of past scandals of tainted vaccines and drugs. And with the zero-COVID policy in place, they worried more about side effects from the vaccine than contracting the virus. Plus, in the West, the vaccines were seen as the way to end lockdowns. In China, there was no sense that vaccination was a ticket to freedom. As the zero-COVID policy is finally being lifted, the government is making a renewed vaccination push. Immunity isn't China's only issue. I mentioned ICUs. In the event of uncontrolled spread, China would need 7 to 16 times the number of existing ICU beds to accommodate the peak number of patients. The country also doesn't have enough supplies of antiviral drugs, and it's rushing to increase stockpiles of those. Remember, the whole point of the lockdowns at the start of the pandemic was to buy time to fortify the medical system and vaccinate the population. Xi Jinping bought oodles of time, but he squandered it. Alas, the Chinese people will pay the price. That's it for this week. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.